Welcome back to The Paradigm Project. Today we'll be discussing how storytelling can be done through music. Um, we'll be discussing this with our, our band teacher, Mr. Bird, and our orchestra teacher, Mr. Hemsley. Um, Mr. Hemsley, can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background in music? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been uh, playing music since I was in the fourth grade where I started playing the double bass in my school orchestra. And I've just kind of followed that trail the whole way. Um, I played all throughout high school and then in college. I majored in commercial music from BYU. Then did some postgraduate work at ASU for music education, which has led me here. Oh, that's awesome. That's a lot of experience. Thank you. I've always, um, like as somebody who's like looking at colleges and things like that, I've always wondered what music school would be like. How, how was the experience for you? Like what kind of classes and experiences did that's you have? Good, I don't know. I had a good experience at BYU. I liked it a lot. I learned a lot, met a lot of great people. Um, I had a not so great experience at ASU, mostly because of the pandemic, um, but there were some other things also. Um, the thing about music school that I kind of think is important to, to maybe take note of is uh, so much is available online to learn now that I don't want to say that music school is like outdated because you can you can do a lot of, of uh, networking and a lot of performing with other talented people in those environments but if you're just looking to learn music there are so many resources that you can use definitely that that is a very important point to make yeah. i'd say i mean i've definitely looked at colleges but mostly just you know driving past them yeah so, sure yeah guys so you got some time to go i feel like i'm aging more rapidly than I ever have in my life. Um, I guess that is how that works. You do look just decrepit, I will say. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, we'll cut that bit out. Uh, no, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Burt, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your background and the experiences you've had? I'd love to, yeah. Funny enough, uh, Mr. Hemsley and I knew each other at BYU. Yeah. We played in a jazz combo together, actually. It was a lot of fun. That was a long time ago. Yeah, probably well, been, ten years ago. We played in that combo together. We it was a good time. We, yeah. uh, but also we saw each other around a music program more than just that combo too. Sure. So kind of fun. Um, I did so, Ethan. If I got it right, you did commercial music. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is studying music um, in. Well, maybe you should just explain what that. Yeah, it's kind of a big umbrella that encompasses rec the recording arts and sciences. It also encompasses jazz and pop music. So anything related to those categories would be under commercial music of you. Or modern things. Yeah, or, mo or modern things, film scoring, you know, music for media, things like that. Huge umbrella. I was technically in the classical umbrella. I was on a trombone major, later did a orchestra conducting master's degree. But during my trombone degree, I did a ton of jazz. And so that was kind of my experience. But I, I loved it a lot. I agree with Mr. Hemsley in the sense that so much information is available online. You can even take courses online now, which is really cool. I think the value of music school for me, I, I love to learn mm -hmm. in social settings. That's just preferable for me. I also like kind of ensembles, you know, can't play in an orchestra online. Yeah, that's a big advantage of, of the music school system. But the network connections that you mentioned as well. So big pros and cons, but uh, for me it was a really wonderful experience. And not in just getting better at music. I, th I think a lot of people wonder, you know, what do you do in music school? Just play all day, you know? Would, you, you play a lot, but yeah. there's also classes on history, which we're both learning to share yeah, from sure. today. And there's classes on theory. We do, I even taught oral skills and sight singing classes, which everybody takes uh, as a grad student, which is, um, there's, there's a lot. And then also you take the general education classes. So I took physics and 
psychology and, you know, intro classes to lots of fields. There's definitely a lot more in music than just what plays through our earbuds, yeah. which can be really easy to forget sometimes. But it's a valuable thing to realize, especially since we're not really going to be like playing a lot of music during this podcast today or really any at all because of copyright reasons. So we're going to be doing a lot of more abstract discussion of music, which has a lot to um, offer. So moving on to that subject, um, what experiences have each of you had regarding storytelling in music? I think back to some of my earliest memories of, of getting into music. One of my earliest musical memories is, is really loving the Friends theme song, which uh, I'll Be There For You by uh, The Replacements. It was, it, was, it, it was just a great, fond memory that I have of being really young. But like, even as, like, as a bumper to a TV show, which is a story, I mean, that's kind of an example of how you can use music to tell a story. And every time you hear that riff at the beginning, it's just like, oh, man, it's, we're about to see some drama with Ross and Rachel or whatever. Um, but, you know, I mean, as you go on and you have more experience with music, you learn about the different ways that, that you know, people have told stories, whether it's uh, tribal chants or religious music or operas. There's been a whole history of it. it yeah, I'm, it's, I'm excited about this topic because uh, it's not the thing that I think about first, but in a way, all music is storytelling. I don't know if I can say it so absolutely. We'll talk more specifically about different kinds of music, composers' intents very widely, right? You might be writing something for a TV show or for a symphony hall, very different purposes. Sure. But whether there is a story given to the audience or not, there is a story imbued in the harmony and the melody. So we'll get into all of that. I'm really quite excited. The range of expression available in music is incredible. And we've actually talked about this before on the podcast. We had Mr. Burr on previously talking about expression through music, a very similar topic, though a little more general. If you haven't listened to that already, I highly recommend that you do so. It's a very fascinating um, discussion that we had. Moving on, what are some of the specific elements of music, whether in, in theory or otherwise, that provide elements of storytelling? Do you mind if I um, offer the listeners a suggestion really quick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I highly recommend, even though we won't be playing examples for you, if you'll right now go, you know, whether you want to have two different devices up or something, look up the things that we mentioned. You can pause a podcast, listen to that for at least a little bit, and then dip back into the podcast. It'll be really great to have auditory example when we speak about these things. Sorry to derail us, but... No, that's, that's great. I think that'll aid a lot in understanding what we talk about today. To, to return to the question, yeah. What are some specific elements of music that allow a story to be told through music? Yeah, sure. So the first thing that I think of is the idea that our speaking voices, they have a natural cadence to it, right? They have a natural ebb and flow of like high pitch stuff is up here and low pitch stuff is down here, you know, and you, you have this whole range that happens. And that translates really well to writing melody if you pay attention to those natural ebbs and flows in, in human speech. So when thinking about like writing music that tells a story, you know, obviously you want to have a story to start with, you know, and it might be, it might be a story that you've heard or you've seen written down. But if you try and translate that via vocal expression, it's always best to start with using the natural ebb and flow of the, the human voice to write a melody because it's going to stick with the listener easier that way. 
we talk about that a little bit in choir here at Paradigm, where if we're more worrying about like rhythm and things like that, even if we just talk through notes, there's a natural like rise and fall that comes with it that even bleeds into the music, which is really interesting. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's one of the distinctions we could point out right at the beginning of this is that you happen to have the two instrumental music teachers in this room right now. You also have Mrs. Steinman, the choir teacher you mentioned, and also uh, Mr. Shattuck, who does the musical theater. And those would be good people to chat with about vocal music another time. Not that, you know, Mr. Hemsley and I yeah, don't no. have any experience, but, you know, they're more expert. Instrumental and vocal distinction is a good one to make off the bat because... First of all, if you have a choral piece with text or a song with text, that's a different approach to telling a story through music, right? It's almost a story supported by music. Well, I don't want to say that outright, but there's a direct line of text that we hear as language and we translate as language. Instrumental music by itself, you asked the question, what are some ways or what are some tools that music has to translate into human emotion? I love what you said, uh, Mr. Hemsley phrasing and those kinds of things. I was thinking of, well, just a brief list. Harmony, which is the way that sounds stack. So we think of like a major chord versus a minor chord. There's also melody, which is more of a horizontal approach through time, I guess, if you if you can imagine that. Do, re, mi, rather than those three notes at the same time, which would be harmony. There are different ways that harmony and melody can express many things, and really that's the palette of the composer. Um, some things will be established over centuries, and then a new composer will come mm -hmm. along and do the opposite thing and do it very well, and we're all very excited about it. One other thing I'm going to just add to that is even the most primitive music and the most uh, you know basic music that we can even think of in, in recorded history, um, another key element would be rhythm. Having some sort of like rhythmic element to the storytelling is what takes something that would be considered maybe a just a recitation. And then when you pair it with rhythm, all of a sudden you have music at its like most basic form. That's That's fascinating. Seeing music evolve through time, I can open up Spotify, for instance, and immediately um, get scammed out of all your money trying to buy Spotify <laughs> Premium. I think it's a good investment, just saying. The availability of music online today is super cool, and we can look there for all these examples of different musical concepts. I can open Spotify and see performances of Mozart's works. I can also see um, like modern-day hip-hop. I, is there really any other kind, I guess? <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing. Oliver, you're here as well. What is some music that you listen to? Let me just read the genre headings really fast on the... Uh, there you go. The liked songs. Funny. Indie. Big band. Angry. Silly. Rap. Are some selections that Spotify has titled my uh, list of liked songs with. So I guess I would describe my musical taste as pretty much that. Pretty, pretty eclectic, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. I love that some of those are music genres and then some of them are just Spotify kind of. This is maybe Silly. a collection yeah. of similar <laughs> feeling things. Our algorithm. But you know what an interesting thing, because I wouldn't call silly a music genre, right? It's but, a mood, though. But it's yeah. a mood, and what are we talking about, right? Storytelling and that kind of thing. I'm curious, Oliver, at what points do you find yourself listening to different parts of that list? Uh, I would essentially just kind of play at random with the shuffle button feature and uh, just kind of see what, uh, what happens from there would be my usual process. 
cool. So you don't like if if you're ever like angry, you don't want to just automatically pop on like really heavy metal music or like heavy hip hop or when you're sad, you don't pop on like sad music. Well, I mean, I could, I guess, but I don't usually. Not usually. No. I had a professor in my master's degree right right at the end of my study at school that had spent his dissertation time exploring um, the musicianship involved in listening to music. And I think that literally anyone who listens to music is a musician on some level. Not a joke either, uh, genuinely. Anyone who listens to music is a musician because it takes musical skills that you develop over time to learn about what you're listening to, even if you never, ever do it consciously. Yeah, it's almost an an unconscious process of developing your expectations. You know, so when you hear something that defies that expectation you're almost like it almost throws you for a loop yeah right so in that sense anyone who's listening right you are a musician let's get that out of the way you are a musician um, whether you play an instrument whether you sing at all whether you think you're the last person you'd ever want in the room to sing you are a musician and it's important i think to acknowledge that we all it's part of the human conversation right that we have this particular language or i'd say set of languages yeah this thing that we do yeah. Across all cultures. Which all cultures do, first of all. I think it's very cool. Definitely. And I guess talking about the evolution of music as a, a linear path, as in like one point to another point, may not necessarily be the most accurate because there are so many different cultures that have had their own musical evolutions throughout time. And it's only now where we're starting to see a culmination of that. Instead of looking at it as like a linear path, I would almost look at it as like a whole bunch of paths that are gradually like converging as we kind of enter a more globalized world where people have the ability to be exposed to all sorts of different kinds of music that, you know, 200 years ago they would never know existed. It's an outrageous time to live in because of that fact. I think like past composers and past musicians, I think, would literally be amazed at what we have available at our fingertips. I mean, 50 years ago, you wanted to hear a song that you heard on the radio. You had to go and buy the the vinyl record. You had to have a vinyl uh, record player. You needed to have headphones and speakers. You know, there was like this whole set of things that you had to do to be able to be a music listener, and you just don't need that anymore. It's a great point because because it's so accessible now, but we're comparing to 50 years ago. What about 200 years ago, right? I mean, the people that got to listen to orchestras were the wealthiest like they were noble right and that slowly democratized a little bit but then recording technology holy cow i mean that's done so much but on the other hand everybody made music you know and it's it's at a level where what good criticism of the music schools that you know teach music history right now something they are actually trying to deal with and change in their curriculum right now right right is that for so long music history has meant the history of music that that layer of society so primarily Eurocentric, yeah. uh, classical music based, and then they'll they'll dip into what they call folk music or world music. Yeah, or world music. Yeah, such a great <laughs> doesn't point out everything your orientation else. It at covers all, yeah. everything else. Yeah. I think it's yeah. so funny to call a genre of music just world. Yeah, exactly. What part? Wh- wh- where's that music from? The only world. specific thing about that is your perspective, yeah, right? Sure. It's like sure. I'm not part of that, right? <laughs> In other words, there's us. And then there's them, and then there's everybody else on the planet. Like, <laughs> Which is funny, because we're just about to go into all Western music, because that's genuinely, like... That's uh, where we're coming from. We anyway, know but, that, yeah. right? Whether it's classical or whether it's modern. But um, just as a caveat, other experts, if they're in Indian Carnatic music, would be able to talk it's the same depth about their own music and stuff. So just that we have an awareness that the whole human conversation is there, then I guess we can go into the Western classical side. <laughs> 
It's just what we teach, apparently. We have a lot of more experience there. That's fantastic. I mean, with that being said, shall we get into that history? Yeah. Why don't we just start off? So earlier you asked about the tools that we might find to tell stories, right? Right. I think early on we should make a distinction between when stories are literally being told versus when it might be something we imagine, you know, based on just sounds rather than text. So... Yeah, so the difference between instrumental music and vocal music is, yeah. is pretty much what you're going for, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. When I think of even instrumental music, I think of two different types of instrumental music. There's expressionistic instrumental music that has a specific story that they're trying to tell, and then there's like impressionistic instrumental music that is all about provoking whatever unique experience to the listener it can. You know, so even, even there, there's like a distinction. But yeah, no, I mean, some of the earliest music that I can think of that I that I'm aware of, you know, would be in you know, a folk genres of, of tribes from the Middle East and from Africa. And most of that music told stories of either legends or, or different uh, things that had happened. And they paired them with rhythm, they paired them with dancing, sometimes they paired them with like primitive form of singing. And then, you know, it just sort of uh, evolved from there. But I, another thing that I think is really important to point out is that uh, religion also had a very important impact on the development of music as we know it. I mean, some of the other earliest music that I can think of would be, uh, you know, music of the, the Catholic Church, for instance. They have uh, tons of music that was part of their liturgy that, you know, was, was repeated very often. And it was always telling the same story, which was in that particular uh, type of music, the point was to glorify God. So, yeah, there there's like lots of different reasons people have made music, but uh, those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head that are the, the most important early ones. Right. And something, I, I did a presentation on like music history kind of last year, and that was really fascinating. And that period of time in particular was very influential on how music developed. I believe there was even a point where, in a way, the Catholic Church restricted the way music um, developed because certain parts of it were deemed blasphemous. Yeah, sure. Yes. It definitely had an imp impact on it. But if you're talking about like the development of Western harmony, like classical music, pop music, stuff that is rooted in Western harmony, that's kind of the origin of where Western harmony came from. Right, and funny enough, so we'll get to Western harmony more specifically in just a second, but the chant in Catholic tradition yeah. might sound, you know, if you played Halo, it's, it's yeah, kind of Yeah, it's a little of, bit like that, but, honestly. You know, like single lines of melody, uh, lots of usually male voices singing on this line. Uh, really cool sound, especially if it's in a cathedral, very cool sound. But they could be talking about many things, whether it's, you know, whatever emotional topic. And what I find is that often my modern ears aren't quite attuned to the same language that they had at that time. Right, yeah. Meaning they might be expressing something joyous in a mode that is, for me, somber. Right. Yeah. So already there, even though it's the origin of Western classical music, we have a difference in like how I digest it versus what they might have intended. I think it's funny. I saw a document a couple of a couple of years ago. I think it was a 1500s description of the sound or like the mood that the different 12 tones had, you know, and, and like they were like assigning emotions to like C sharp and B flat. And I'm like, this is totally objective. You know what I mean? But but it helps you kind of step into their mindset of like, hey, this is, to them, this is what it sounded like, where to us, it might sound completely different. And it's just because of those expectations that we've kind of talked about a little bit that we've built up over time about what sounds sad and what sounds happy and what sounds this and that. Yeah. One, one thing I might recommend to the listeners here, 
go look up any of the chants by Hildegard von Bingen. Yeah. Really awesome person. First female composer that I'm aware yeah. of. Yeah, 1100s feminist icon. Really awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Feminist icons right? in the 1100s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, I think she did lots of music. Anyway, go listen to her stuff. And then I was going to say, if we move a little bit later into the Renaissance period and Baroque, what you're referring to, and I can't remember the word for my classes, would have failed my final, I don't know. But uh, they had really like explicitly written out instrumental things. These are not with lyrics, right? If I resolve these two chords or I do this little ornament on the melody, that means this thing. Yeah. They had like this library of things that they were just familiar with. That's what it meant to them. Plugging in formulas to get right. a certain sound. Right. It's like, think of as if you tried to show the, you know, the modern verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus sort of song format to someone with no conception of what a pop song is. You know, and then, and then now you look back at like old music and, and you realize how little you probably perceived that the people at that time would have perceived. Right, there was a totally different norm. And like even socially, I think that would implement how certain sounds were even felt. Like there was a certain expectation as to how like maybe a more somber sound should be felt. Yeah. Like in the case of like the church and liturgy, I'd imagine that like a more somber tone can be like more joyous, for instance, but it also has a certain element of sacredness that is supposed to influence how the listener feels. Yeah. Which is really interesting. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. I haven't really learned too much about the medieval era of music making. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I highly recommend, let's see, Josquin Dupuis, yeah. right? Desprez is what it looks like to us. Desprez. Desprez, yeah. Mm -hmm. But Josquin Mille Regrets. Yeah, M-I-L-L-E Regrets. A Thousand Regrets. It's just stunning. I mean, holy cow. Listen to that. Pause right now. Go listen to that. Lay down in your bed. Just close your eyes and just let that wash over. It's really stunning. If you want something a little more digestible, just go look up Bardcore. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Interesting. Like it, they, they, there are these guys on YouTube that will take like modern pop songs and rearrange them in the style of the Renaissance with Renaissance instruments, and it's quite fun. In choir today, actually, Miss Simon showed us uh, like a medieval instrumental arrangement of the Angry Birds theme. Yeah, see, there you go. Bardcore. Super interesting. Bardcore. That's what yeah. that's called. It's everywhere. I think. It's everywhere. Bad Piggies Drip Remix in the 1200s. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> That, that's what we would call like early music in Western classical. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that sort of tradition. And then we go into, let's see, we've got Bach, who really, he's in this Baroque period, we call it. He codified a lot of the harmony, and I think that's an important place to start, because yeah. this is where we start to really outline major and minor, you know? Mm -hmm. And Bach, if you want to listen through a lot of his things, the, the cello suites are incredible. Everyone knows, you know, he plays with major and minor in such a wonderful way. He's not the one who invented it, but I'd say he really set it in stone for the next. Yeah, I wouldn't say that he, he invented most of the things that he did. I just think he was the most prolific and consistent at bringing all of these elements that existed that he heard from other people and in other genres and in other uh, compositions and like bringing them together in one body of works. And he just did so, so successfully that, you know, we remember him as like the guy that you go to when um, you're, you're learning about how chords move from one chord to another chord. You just go back and look at Bach. Back to what was interesting. I was looking at a, I played the double bass. That's my main instrument. I was looking at a double bass player who I really like on YouTube. And he's a popular um, session musician and a popular educator also. He's also really young. He's only like 23 or 24. 
name's Cole Davis. You should check him out if you if you're so inclined. But he was talking about how he pl- he plays a gig where he needs to do like a three or four minute totally unaccompanied bass solo. You know, it's like a jazz group, but like when when everybody else drops out, it's just him for like a couple minutes. And he's like, well, how can I tackle that? How do I do that? And he said, ironically, I play a lot of things inspired by Bach. And the reason he goes back to Bach is because Bach just does such a good job of outlining harmony that if you apply that to like a jazz standard, like those same kind of techniques, you don't need any other instrument. You can play a whole piece and you know where the chords are going and you know where everything is happening on one instrument because you outline everything so well. And I thought that was a really amazing uh, perspective on that, especially since most people say jazz-based solos are boring. And rightfully so, because a lot of times you don't know where the harmony is. You don't really know what's going on. It's just kind of there, you know, and it's the part where everybody goes and gets up and gets a drink or goes to the bathroom. Or so he's talking to their friend. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there's we talk about melody and chords or melody and harmony now. Bach didn't. In fact, like... It was the same thing. The, we, in, in his fugues, so what Bach would have thought as his best work uh, was his, his fugues. You can look up the Art of Fugue. It's like, it's kind of the Old Testament for classical music. It's yeah. just, it's so fantastic. Um, really deep. The the Art of Fugue, um, he, he refers to his fugues, which are a combination of voices. So he's writing these for instruments, right? We actually don't know if he intended the Art of Fugue for a keyboard or whatever. We, he just wrote it he as music. Unspecified. And uh, he calls them voices, but it's meant for instruments, or it can be voices without words, right? But voices four voices or eight voices in this fugue and they interact in this beautiful interest terribly complex way also but i love to think of that as far as telling stories because he's literally using the word we use for the thing that we tell a story with right and yet he's using tones instead of words right so for bach it very much was this chance to i don't know play with all of these possibilities of, of expression yeah i agree no bach was bach was the king that, that's fantastic. I'd like to take a minute to appreciate the phrase um, back to Bach. Uh-huh, yeah. saying, I don't know why. Just love that. Sounds so, so fun. Yeah, there's so many puns in the classical music world that were, you know, Bach in a minuet. You know, I'll be Bach in a minuet. Yeah, you know, just like, oh, gosh, it's really corny, you know, and it's, it's found everywhere all over the world in every music school. But it's just it's, it's just very pervasive. It happens everywhere. Every music appreciation teacher that thinks they're going to come up with a witty name calls it Bach to Rock, and they think they've discovered Oh, ha, ha. I've made a joke no one else has made before. Yeah, it never has been done. <laughs> Innovation at its finest, you know? All right, moving on in music history a little bit. What are some, some other artists, maybe a little closer to our time, that have influenced storytelling in music? Should, should we go to German Romanticism really quick? Yeah, sure, if you'd like. So I just want to spend a little time here. We could spend forever. But I'm going to name three people you can look up. First is Johannes Brahms. Um, look up any one of his four symphonies, or I mean, he wrote so much. I like symphony number four a ton. And then I'm going to also talk about Richard Strauss yes. and Wagner. Wagner. Or Gustav Mahler as well. So uh, I mentioned these three because there was an interesting debate in music history at that time that Brahms was on this side that they called absolute music. He wrote symphonies and piano pieces. He's talking about instrumental music. If he wrote vocal music, right, it was specifically that. Music for music's sake was what he was about. He was on the other side of this fence. The other guys, Richard Strauss, wrote something he called tone poems, which were literally stories. He didn't give you a play-by-play by measure, but he would give the audience kind of like a title and like a general storyline kind of that they could follow through this purely instrumental piece. All these events are depicted uh, through instrumental means, basically. And then for Richard Wagner, he was writing operas. You can look up Tristan and Isolde. Everybody knows 
funny enough, an instrumental piece called The Ride of the Valkyries. We have Apocalypse Now to thank for that, yeah. which was a great movie. That's right. So um, there's these three people. So one of them is doing purely instrumental music. He's not giving stories out. Absolute music. He even calls it Symphony Number no. 4. Terrible, boring title, right? But he's specifically saying, it's not a story. It's just music. Be here just for music. Then the middle one is saying, here's this purely instrumental thing, but I'm kind of gu- guiding you through this story loosely. Use your imagination, yeah. basically. And then the other one's an opera, which you can compare to our modern musical theater, full of you know props, actors, lyrics, you know, storyline, the music, the instrumental music helps you carry through that story, but it kind of links all the vocal parts together. So there's this big debate going on in Europe, uh, Germany, Austria. To kind of interject, Wagner, I did a little bit of research on him beforehand, and he has this very interesting concept that he employs when he's writing. And it's called in German, and excuse my very rudimentary understanding of German, Tessamskun's work. I'm so glad you mentioned this. I was going to bring it up. I forgot. This concept is kind of the this idea. Wagner sought to bring all forms of art together in one like grand work, which is a very impressive feat. But he's he's very interesting because he's like the only composer of his time who uh, wrote both the script for his operas and the music. Yeah, usually they would have they would have somebody whose whole profession was to write the the libretto of the opera. He designed the sets. He designed the theater. I'm sure he had help, right? Oh, but sure. He designed the theater that it would be played in, right? He's serious about this. Yeah, he's, I mean, Wagner's an interesting guy. Like, I don't think he was, like, a perfectly good guy, but, like, he, he's, he, he was, like, total genius. Absolutely a genius. Like, you can't question that. And his effect on, on music has been, has been amazing. It's been uh, impossible to measure, I think. Yeah. Not to dwell so much on those. I just, I would suggest those few things. So listen to Brahms Symphony Number no. 4, listen to Strauss, uh, Ein Heldenleben, or Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks, and then uh, Wagner's Tristan and Isolde if you want to be there for four hours. But um, it's a long time. There's a lot in opera. But I want to just mention those because there was this same debate going on. The whole point of that is that you can express stories without lyrics. They do get more specific when you add lyrics, for sure. But, um, Mr. Hamza, you were going to talk about certain, like, I can't remember the pieces you were going to go into. Yeah, sorry. So, um, so when we were coming to this, we were kind of brainstorming um, our different ideas of really important things, maybe within the last, I don't know, like, like an old one and then a new one within the last couple decades. Possibly one of the most important works of the 20th century that is all about telling stories through instrumental music would be Dizzy's Fantasia. Ah, uh, good stuff. Okay. My personal favorite is, is one that we're playing here in the orchestra, um, is Night on Bald Mountain by Mussorgsky. And that whole thing is an instrumental depiction of like basically spooky stuff, like like a, a witch's Sabbath on a haunted mountain. You you know, skeleton dance, all, all sorts, sorts of stuff, stuff like that. that. Dude, those skeletons did dance quite they a lot did. in that they, scene. They absolutely did. Um, but but just in general, Fantasia itself, I think, is is one of the most important things to come out of animation because, like, even though it was not a huge critical hit or commercial hit, it really brought music and movies together in a way that they had never been brought together before. So that was the one thing that I was thinking about as a really important, fairly recent thing. Yeah, that's super cool. Fantasia is something that 
I think a lot of people forget about in the Disney catalog. Yeah, sure. But yeah. it's a super fantastic work. Highly recommend. Fantasia 2000 is okay. <laughs> I like the Firebird one. Firebird. Oh, yeah, Firebird's good. I, love the, I just love the Firebird. That's a beautiful you could, piece. You could, you could put like really boring footage to the Firebird and it'd be Still, fine. it slaps. <laughs> it slaps. Dravinsky slaps. I used that word this morning in my class and my, my scholars were like, did Mr. Burt just say that music slaps? <laughs> we don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to sound cool. Hey, I mean, it works. You're you're a musician. You gotta you gotta say slaps. You right. know. What's up? I love the uh, the image that birds can be like. I gotta be cool for the scholars. You're gonna come right? with a little clip right. on sunglasses that go over clip top on. of the glasses. That's the definition of cool, right there. Clip on sunglasses. <laughs> I was gonna say, if you're listening and you're not really familiar with classical music, this doesn't just apply to classical music. We've you know offline. Maybe we'll do a little bit here right now, but. You can think of this in literally all the genres of music that are currently popular and, you know, like all what we'd call popular music. We've mentioned some things like Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp the Butterfly. You're mentioning some Pink Floyd, right? Yeah, well, Pink, if you talk about programmatic music or music that has a storyline like uh, concept albums of Pink Floyd in the 1970s were huge for that. Um, Another Brick in the Wall, Animals, Wish You Were Here, Dark Side of the Moon, those four primarily. Tyler, the creator's Igor, I've been thinking about a lot. That was one of my favorite albums for a storytelling perspective. Like that does such a good job at like both telling the story and conveying all of the emotions that yeah. the speaker is feeling throughout sure. the story. That, I mean, best hip hop album of 2019. I feel like it's kind of to be expected, but you know. One of the fun things in um, early American popular music history in early jazz, which a lot of our popular genres grew out of, there's a man named Duke Ellington. Yeah. A lot of the recording at that time was done on these like max three minute, you know, discs. That's all they could take, right? So they'd write short songs because of that, you know, take short solos and do short things. But in live performances, Duke was exploring the idea of long form jazz compositions. Uh, Black and Tan Fantasy mm. is a piece, but I think it was born in kind of a suite like that. And yeah. so he took kind of the classical model, which I think is fun to talk about just American music as this melding of. Western classical plus African root. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting to mention the effect that the recording medium actually had on music too, because yeah. like a lot of those early recording mediums could not hold a whole lot of content, and so that influenced a lot of how long music was to our present convention of maybe three or four minutes max on a song. Right. That that all came from just not having the ability to record more. And I think it forces people to be more creative with yeah. how they tell stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is super cool. So um, we've discussed some really interesting examples of modern music that has storytelling. Um, Kendrick Lamar, uh, Pink Floyd has a lot of stuff. Uh, Tyler, the creator's Igor was brought up, which is not something I thought of, but it's a really good example. Yes. So definitely there are even artists like uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot is something that um, Mr. Hemsley mentioned to me previously. There are a lot of these like folk artists, for instance, who had really interesting ideas um, about storytelling. Which, if you're looking for a good folk artist, I highly recommend you go and listen to uh, The Mountain Goats. Ooh. The Mountain Goats has a lot of incredible stuff. With a, with a name like that, they have to be folky. I mean, yeah. And they've also put out, like, multiple studio albums every year for the past 25 years. Hey, so there's... Cool. The reason I brought up uh, Gordon Lightfoot so much is because, I mean, like, you look at Bob Dylan as, like, this super influential figure in American music and uh, as a master storyteller. And what he would do is, um, you know, he would just kind of have his guitar and his, his voice and his ability to tell stories. Um, but Gordon Lightfoot was actually 
Bob Dylan's favorite songwriter. Fun fact. So if the greatest songwriter of all time has someone else as his favorite songwriter, probably a really good uh, guy to check out in terms of storytelling. If you're looking for a particular track that I think has a good way of conveying a full-length narrative, you could look up the seven-verse-long uh, The Wreck of Ed- the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's all about a ship that went down um, in Lake Erie. Yeah, definitely look into to that and these other like more modern artists in addition to the classical composers that we've discussed. Um, so we're we're about out of time. So we usually end these episodes with a takeaway and a challenge. Great. Uh, do you guys have a preference as to which one you'd like to do? I have an idea for a challenge. I do a takeaway. Sounds good. So we'll do a takeaway first, and then we can end with the challenge. Uh, my takeaway is I gotta go listen to Tyler the Creator's Igor because uh, I'm not super familiar with it. And apparently it's really good. Yeah. Honestly, same. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, did you want something serious? I'm sorry. That's my actual takeaway. I mentioned um, Kendrick as well earlier, and that's the same story there. If, if you don't want to listen to that, then that's one of the best examples of what we're talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, so my challenge, I was going to say, whatever you listen to next, I challenge you, I guess, to find a genre that you're a little less comfortable with. Yeah. So Absolutely. for me growing oh, up, yeah. it would have been country because I grew up around country and like my, my mom was an opera singer and I was just like not going to cross the line of our threshold. But I like country now. And so as I've, I've got into it, think about the story. So if it's a song with words, go through and first try to separate out what effects or what is the composer doing with uh, harmony, melody, the, the kind of the tone part of this. How is he making me feel things? Go back and play things a few times, you know. Really dissect a song for yourself. How does he reach this beautiful moment? How does he make me upset here? Write down some notes on what what you think it was. Uh, if there's lyrics, do the same thing with the lyrics, you know, and see how the composer lines them up. They can do just really fantastic stuff there. So I guess my challenge in a nutshell, find a new song or an old song that you like. If you're willing, go into a genre that uh, you're less familiar with and just try to analyze both from a uh, an instrumental side and then a vocal side how you think the composer has packaged the story together, I guess, put the story together in the music. In other words, like, but kind of be conscious of, of what techniques they're using to convey what they're trying to tell you. Okay, right on. Thanks, guys. That was really great. Thank you so much for listening to The Paradigm Project. Please rate us five stars on iTunes, as that helps us a lot. We also have a Q&A on Spotify, if you'd like to answer that. If for any reason you'd want to get in contact with us, you can either shoot us an email at podcast at paradigmhigh.org, or you can DM us on Instagram at the Paradigm Pod. We really appreciate you listening to this episode, and uh, we really appreciate uh, Mr. Burt and Mr. Hemsley for coming, and uh, sharing with us a brilliant conversation on uh, music history and uh, musical pieces. Thanks, everyone, and keep engaging in the great conversation. So we're here with Mr. Hemsley. Mr. Hemsley, would you like to tell us what you do here at Paradigm and a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I just started this week. I'm going to be the strings teacher. So I'm going to be handling all the orchestra classes and beginning strings. And then I'm also going to be covering photography and piano. So mostly music, but some of the visual arts as well. Awesome. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. They've got me doing several different things. Yeah. It's an example of, you know, if you bring up outside hobbies in your interview, they might just have you (laughs) teach them. So definitely. That's awesome, though. I'm a huge fan of photography. And I I mean, I was passing the bin storage room and I saw the pianos in there and and you teaching some kids. And I was like, whoa, I didn't realize that either. Mm -hmm. So that was super cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to teach at Paradigm? It's a good question. So I was about 75% through a master's in music education at Arizona State last year. Arizona passed a law recently, which basically made it 
difficult for me to get certified down there. It's like the equivalent of asking for experience and an entry-level job kind of a thing. Kind of frustrating. But, uh, you know, I, I went to BYU for my undergrad and a lot of things just opened up where it became apparent to me that I would be better to just move back to Utah. So I started looking for, for orchestra teaching jobs in Utah and Paradigm was one of the first ones that came up. In fact, I think I applied for it the day that they posted the job just because I was checking regularly. And they were super responsive and the interviews went really great. And it seems like the philosophy and culture here is something that I can really jive with. I like it a lot. That's awesome. We always love having new mentors who can offer like unique perspectives on, on Paradigm's mission and jive with that in unique ways. And I think that's amazing. Um, what are some previous things that you've done before Paradigm? That's a good question. I've done a lot of things. In the last four years, uh, while I was working on my master's at ASU, I was working at a call center at night. You know, it's like one of those night jobs, go to school during the day, work at night. I did a couple of odd jobs. I worked at a music shop where I sold band and orchestra rental contracts. So that's kind of how I became familiar with that process, which is good here because everyone's renting their instruments usually. And then before that, before that was the pandemic. And I think everybody was kind of having trouble during the pandemic. I lost, mm -hmm. I lost a job that I was at at that point too. So wow, that's a bummer. Yeah, the pandemic was, was rough. It's, it's still shaking employment here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here, here's another question. What is one of your favorite readings? We like to talk a lot about reading classic literature here in Paradigm and appreciating that. Yeah, so uh, when I was driving up from Arizona the last time, because I drove back and forth a couple of times, I listened to a couple of audiobooks. One of them was Brave New World, which is a very famous book from the 20th century. It's about a weird dystopian future where instant gratification is like the main focus of society. And it's kind of a critique of that. That was a really interesting read just to go back and I read it in high school, but hearing it now is some striking similarities to things that you see really prevalently in society now. So I thought it was really relevant. Another thing that I read was Heart of Darkness, which is a novella. It's not that long. It was only about three hours, but it's kind of an examination of just how dark the light, the world can get and humanity can get. So I kind of like darker literature. Like I really like The Exorcist. I like Dracula, some of the classic horror novels. And then the only other thing that I can think of off the top of my head would be like Ayn Rand books, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. People make fun of her a lot, but I think a lot of her ideas in those two books were really revolutionary. And the idea of like improving society by making yourself the best possible version of you, you know, rather than somebody who needs to rely on society to prop them up. You know, I think that's a really great thing that we should be teaching kids that they can improve society by being the best that they can be. Those those are some really impressive tastes. And yeah, reading like some of those darker books thematically, mm -hmm. can, it can be really challenging sometimes, but I've always found that it teaches me a lot. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, can't be naive about the way the world is, but also, you know, there's just as much, if not more light in the world than there is darkness. So you got to balance it out. Right, exactly. Along those same lines, what is a favorite quote that you often think Ooh, of? favorite quote. That's tough. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving isn't for you. No, I, haven't, I haven't heard that one. I, that's the first one that comes to my mind. No, that's a joke quote, though. I'm thinking of something from The Exorcist, which I don't know if you'll be able to use it, but it, you know, it's like, let me pull it up real quick. The Exorcist is a book that I read fairly recently, and one of the characters is a Catholic priest who has kind of uh, lost faith in humanity, lost faith in God, lost faith in the world. Um, and another character is a priest that I think more embodies the author's viewpoint of the way the world is. And this is what he said. So obviously the exorcist is about, 
is about like a possession, right? Like demonic, like rooted in, in reading the Bible. But this is this is kind of what he said. Possession doesn't lie so much in wars as some tend to believe, not so much. Very rarely in extraordinary interventions. No, I see possession most often in the little things, Damien. In the senseless petty spites and misunderstandings, the cruel and cutting words that leap unbidden to the tongue between friends, between lovers, between husbands and wives. Enough of these, and we have no need of the devil to manage our wars. We can manage them for ourselves. So I read that, and I was just like, people that are drawn to the really dramatic bad things that happen in the world. But more often than not, a lot of our problems come from the petty little things that we do to each other. And if we have enough of those, then we don't need extraordinary bad things in the world to make us depressed. So just as you know, kind of dark as that is, the, the same priest went on to say something really optimistic. And what he said, was we mourn the blossoms of May because they are to wither, but we know that May is one day to have its revenge upon November by the revolution of that solemn circle which never stops, which teaches us in our height of hope ever to be sober and in our depth of desolation never to despair. Those are two really powerful quotes. Thank you. Yeah, so it's it's really philosophically, I thought, was really great. Yeah, and it really it resonates with what you were saying earlier about like individual responsibility to take the hope and the opportunities we have to avoid those little um, barbed words mm-hmm. that make come from us throughout our days mm-hmm. and to turn that into something that's good, that turns us into the best version of ourselves to contribute to society at whole. All right, so one more question. Sure. What is one line from the Paradigm Declaration that you find particularly resonant? Um, I see the nobility in every person, more or less, if that's close. I like that a lot. I think in the world right now, it's very easy to divide us, all of ourselves into different camps. Like I'm with this group or I'm with this group or I, you know, this is how I label myself and whatever. And I think more often than not, we overlook the fact that just because we have things that are maybe different between us and somebody else, that doesn't mean that we don't also have tons of things that are in common. And it doesn't mean that people who have traits that we might not necessarily like don't also have a lot of good qualities to offer. And so every time I hear that, I'm just like, man, that's true. You know, you don't need to agree with everyone um, on everything to be friends. And you don't need to, you know, agree with everyone to see the light that's in everybody else. So I like that a lot. Yeah, same. That is definitely one of my favorite lines. Thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was great to learn more about you yeah. and to have the opportunity now to exhibit that to the rest of the school as well. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you.